Hello everyone and welcome to the next episode on a Light Into My Path podcast. I am your host or teacher if you prefer, Howard Sides, uh, looking into events and people who had a role in bringing about the authorized version, also known as the King James Version of the Bible as we have it today. Um, we have just finished up in chapter, uh, well I say chapter, but I guess you'd say uh, the six. 15th century. So today we're going to pick up uh, in the 16th century, which, which was events from the 1500s to 1599 uh, that was critical in uh, bringing about the authorized version. Now today we're going to discuss a person uh, by the name of Martin Luther, which I'm sure if you are any kind of student of history that you've probably heard uh, that name at some point or time. You may not know a lot about this individual. Uh, maybe you do know quite a bit about it, but we're going to discuss him as it is. Now for a uh, scriptural uh, connection to that, let's look in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And I think that fits fairly well to uh, Martin Luther. Uh, as, as we unfold the events in his life, we'll get to that point there where uh, this scripture played a very key role. In, in uh, I guess you would say, a turnabout in his life. So uh, as we get into that, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, it says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So, uh, these verses are very critical in letting us know immediately and very clearly that you cannot earn your salvation, you cannot work for your salvation, you cannot prove your salvation. It is a gift, and it is a simple gift of God. You can't do anything to affect that other than just simply accept it, okay? That's what that verse means. Now, uh, let's get into <clears throat> the events of uh, this episode today. Uh, 1483 to 1536, of course, covers the life and events of a fellow by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German priest and professor of theology who initiated the Protestant Reformation on October 31st, 1517. Okay, 1505. He became an Augustinian monk in the Erfurt, Germany Friary. Uh, Erfurt, E-R-F-U-R-T. Erfurt, Germany Luther described this period of his life as one of deep spiritual despair. He said, I quote, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter and made of him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul, unquote. Uh, Johann von Staupitz, his superior, concluded that Luther needed, quote, more work to distract him from excessive introspection, unquote. <laughs> and ordered him to pursue an academic career. What you need, boy, is more education. That's what he's trying to tell him. <laughs> so here we see, and I, this is not a funny thing, obviously. Luther was depressed. He was searching for some answers and couldn't find them. And his superior there, Johann von Staupitz, S-T-A-U-P-I-T-Z, Staupitz, uh, told Luther, said, what you need is more education. And this point of view continues to be the current world philosophical answer. Uh, 
more education. There's nothing wrong with education itself. But when it is used to replace thinking and meditating on divine things, we begin to place our own ideas above those of God. Okay, if you don't allow time for God, then all you have to fall back on is your own thoughts. We have to meditate on God. We have to let God in to speak to us. All right. In 1512, Luther earns his Doctor of Theology degree at the University of Wittenberg, that is spelled with a W, and joins the Senate of the Theological Faculty there. Now, 1517, the Protestant Reformation. From 1516 to 1517, Johann Tetzel, that's T-E-T-Z-E-L, T-E-T-Z-E-L, Johann Tetzel, a friar and papal commissioner for indulgences, is sent to Germany to collect money for rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. If you know anything of the Vatican, and you look at the size of that building, you know it's going to take quite a bit of money. So what do they do? Well, let's offer up indulgences and let's go to Germany and raise some money. That's what they're doing. So Roman Catholic theology states that man's faith is not enough for justification or salvation. There must be charity and good works or indulgences included. Let me say that again. Okay, let's just be clear about this. Roman Catholic theology states that man's faith is not enough. That good works must be included. What did I just read? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, not of works. There's a problem. Either the Bible's right, or the Roman Catholic Church is right. They both can't be right, because right there is the controversy. One says it involves works, the other says it's not of works. So, you have to work that out in yourself. <clears throat> All right. Uh, on October 31st of 1517, Luther wrote to Albrecht, Archbishop of Mainz and Magdeburg, protesting the sale of indulgences. He enclosed in his letter a copy of his uh, work, quote, uh, Disputation of Martin Luther on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. That's the title of his work, which came to be known in our time as the 95 Thesis. Okay, that was the official name. Disputation of Martin Luther on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. Uh, and I'm sure that the, the 95 Theses as a name was meant to shorten it, but it was also to hide the argument that, uh, well, within the title itself, indulgences, you know, <laughs> doesn't work. Okay? Now, when he wrote the letter, he also nailed a copy of these 95 Theses to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, or Wittenberg. I, I always pronounce it the German way, I guess. <clears throat> now, the nail marks have been preserved even to this day in the doors of that church. You can see them today. Uh, this act alone is credited as sparking the actual Reformation movement in itself, nailing those 95 theses on that door. All right. Now, the 95 theses itself was quickly translated from Latin into German and spread rapidly with the help of the printing press, a relatively new invention throughout Germany in two weeks and then in all of Europe in two months. And you think, holy cow, two weeks? All across the entire nation in two weeks, how did that happen? A mechanical printing press. Now get this, all right? You just picture God's God being involved in all of this. The printing press was invented by Johann Gutenberg. A lot of people learned that in school, so you may not be shocked by that. 
Well, that name ought to give something away. Gutenberg. <laughs> okay. He just so happened to also be a German. Wow. Imagine that. But it goes even further than that. Guess where he lived? Nowhere else but Mainz, Germany, which is very near Worms, Germany. Worms, Germany. Okay. Where was the 95 Theses Church at? In Wittenberg. Right there in the same area. I mean, the stones throw away, as we say. Yet another amazing example of God's handiwork in developing and bringing people together to accomplish his goals. He has uh, <clears throat> he has Johann Gutenberg in, in, uh, invent this uh, printing press. They can spit these pages out real fast. And uh, Martin Luther uh, nails that thesis to the door, inflames this uh, Reformation period, and it needs fuel. They have to have the information. It has to get out there faster than the normal processes. Well, lo and behold, here's this printing press. Boom, there it goes. And listen, it spread across Germany in two weeks and all of Europe in two months. Two months, that's eight weeks. The entire continent of Europe in two months. Can you just not see that there's, wow, there's something right about that? Something that's got some meat to it. I mean, if it was fake, it's, yeah, okay. But, all right, anyway, let's go on. 1525. The Doctrine of Justification. From 1510 to 1520, Luther, Luther, sorry about that, Luther lectured on the Psalms, Hebrews, Romans, and Galatians. The studies for these lectures revealed to Luther a different meaning to Catholic terms such as penance and righteousness. Luther realized that the Catholic Church was corrupt and misrepresenting the true meaning of these terms. The biggest revelation for Luther was the true meaning of justification. <clears throat> Excuse me. Justification is the process by which sinful human beings are made acceptable to a holy God. Uh, for an explanation of justification, just so you have a very clear understanding of what it is. God is holy and can only be in the presence of holiness. So when Adam and Eve committed the first sin, the fellowship with God was broken. The penalty and only acceptable price for sin is death. God himself provided this payment in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins with his perfect, sinless blood. That was the only way all sins could be forgiven. Otherwise, as we committed a sin, we would have to die for our own individual sins. I could not die for my wife's sins. I could not die for my children's sins. I could not die for my cousin's sins. You would have to die for your own. Jesus Christ, whose perfect blood would have been the is the only acceptable payment for everyone's sins. So God, all God asks of us is to accept that gift, freely given, that we in no way, shape, or form could ever earn on our own. You can't earn your salvation. You can't achieve it. You can't have God change the rules just based on something you do. Uh, it's the law. I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is. God's holy. And, and that's that. Okay? Now, <clears throat> Luther began teaching that salvation was a gift of God, which could only be gained through faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior. Luther said, and I quote, This one and firm rock, which we call the doctrine of justification, is the chief article of the whole Christian doctrine, which comprehends the understandings of all godliness. Now, Luther understood justification was entirely the work of God. The previous year, 1524, 
uh, Desiderius Erasmus published a book entitled On Free Will. Luther responded by writing a work entitled On the Bondage of Free Will. Luther based his position on of predestination on Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. <clears throat> now the teaching of that day was that justification was obtained through righteous acts of believers performed in cooperation with God. In other words, what we simply call today good works. Okay, Luther said that Christians receive justification entirely from outside of themselves. He said that righteousness not only comes from Christ, but actually is the very righteousness of Christ himself given to Christians through faith. Luther said, and I quote, This is why faith alone makes someone just and fulfills the law. Faith is that which brings the Holy Spirit through the merits of Christ. Unquote. Later in 1537, Luther wrote uh, <clears throat> what is called the Small Cod Articles. Uh, Small Cod. S-M-A-L-C-A-L-D. Small Cod. <laughs> which were a summary of Lutheran doctrines. He wrote, quote, the first and chief article is this, Jesus Christ, our God and Lord, died for our sins and was raised again for our justification. And in quote, uh, that's based on Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 25. He continues, quote, he alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. Quote, and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. All have sinned and are justified freely within, or excuse me, without their own works and merits by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in his blood. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. This is necessary to believe. This cannot be otherwise acquired or grasped by any work, law, or merit. Therefore, it is clear and certain that this faith alone justifies us. Nothing of this article can be yielded or surrendered, even though heaven and earth and everything else falls. Mark chapter 13, verse 31, unquote. Now, in 1529, <clears throat> uh, Luther writes a hymn. Uh, you may have sung this song in, in your church. It's in a lot of hymnals. Uh, if you don't ever pay attention to the authors of some of these songs, you might start now. But he, he writes this hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it is a paraphrase of the chapter, uh, Psalms chapter 46. Uh, in it, it is the words, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to do us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Amen. <clears throat> now, speaking about the Luther Bible, in uh, the year 1534, he writes his German version. And this was written from 1517 to 1534. It was highly respected as authoritative. 
In other words, it was looked at as a rule book. I mean, that's how respected this Bible was. It is considered to be important to the evolution of the modern German language. Now, what I mean by that, uh, Germany, uh, and I spent some time there, okay, so I know what I'm talking about, but there, there is a different language, if you will, in the southern part of Germany than there is in the northern part of Germany. Um, for example, I know you're not going to understand this, but uh, the, the, the official German language uh, for when you greet someone, good day, is guten Tag. Guten Tag. Uh, in the northern regions, though, sometimes they would say goose goose or goose gross. <laughs> it's been 20 some years. I can't remember exactly. Uh, but listen, we, we go through that here in America, too. The same thing uh, down here in the south. And you go into a, a, a McDonald's or a Dairy Queen and you order a milkshake. One of my most favorite things there are. OK, love milkshakes. Order a milkshake. If you go up into Boston, Massachusetts, and you order a milkshake, they're going to look at you funny, turn around and take a carton of milk and shake it and hand it to you, okay? <laughs> it's called a frap in the Boston area. I've got family that lives in Boston, and we went up there when I was a kid, and it was a different world, yeah. But listen, uh, we may have little slang words that we don't get around very easily, or may have to figure out what it is, uh, just like in the... Uh, Nation of England, they call it biscuits. Well, over here, you know what a biscuit is. Down south, if it don't weigh three pounds, it's not a real biscuit. And it's a biscuit. You put bacon and egg and cheese and all kinds of stuff on it. Load that thing up with some uh, a fried egg or, or uh, some scrambled egg, if you like. Or throw some grits on it. Throw some gravy on it. And, you know, go to town. Well, in England, a biscuit is a cookie. So, <laughs> Uh, it's just the, the so when when he writes his German version of this Bible, it actually became uh, so incredibly important to the the nation of Germany. It modernized the German language. In other words, it it it's it made a formal language based on on how uh, Martin Luther wrote this Bible. So we see that now <clears throat> from fifteen twenty one to fifteen twenty two, Luther had been sequestered or basically on house arrest in the Wartburg Castle. While here, Luther used Erasmus's second edition, that was the one from 1519, which became known as the Textus Receptus, and translated the New Testament into German to make it more acceptable to the German people. Luther was so adamant about making sure the translation was correct that he would walk among the townsfolk and listen to them speak to ensure their comprehension and translation. <laughs> In 1522, Luther was released from Wardburg Castle and promptly published his New Testament version. New Testament version, okay? Now, 1534, Luther translates and published the entire Bible in the German language in a six-part release with the help of some important men. Uh, and I will go through some of these and, and just tell you a little bit about what they did or the role. Uh, the first fellow uh, was by the name of Johannes Bugenhagen, B-U-G-E-N. H-A-G-E-N, Johannes Bugenhagen. He was Luther's pastor in Wittenberg. He introduced the Protestant Reformation in Denmark and Pomerania, which was the very northern tip of Germany. And upon Luther's death, Bugenhagen looked after his widow and children. So obviously these two men were pretty close. Uh, the second individual that, he, uh, that helped him was uh, Justus Jonas. Justus Jonas. He was a great admirer of Erasmus who influenced Luther to study Greek, Hebrew, 
and biblical studies. The most active among all the Wittenberg reformers. He was a gifted translator in Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and German. He was present at Luther's deathbed and preached his funeral. He was banished by Maurice, Duke of Saxony, from his own hometown. From then until his death, he never secured a job, but rather wandered from place to place preaching. This was basically a form of evangelism. <clears throat> okay. Third individual was by the name of Caspar Kreuziger. Kreuziger, C-R-E-U-Z-I-G-E-R. Kreuziger. He was a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. He was also the pastor of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, and he was Martin Luther's secretary. Uh, he, he played an important role in the revision of Luther's German Bible, which we'll come across that a little bit later. Uh, the fourth person uh, was Philip Melanchthon, and that is, uh, Melanchthon is M-E-L-A-N-C-H-T-H-O-N. Melanchthon. And I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but please forgive me if I am. I'm trying. <laughs> not really doing it on purpose. Uh, now, this guy, Philip, was very close to Martin Luther. Uh, he is credited as the primary founder of Lutheranism. He is the first systematic theologian. Systematic theology uh, is a discipline, a discipline of Christian theology that attempts to formulate an orderly, rational, and coherent account of the Christian faith and beliefs. Now, after Luther's death, his life was full of trouble and suffering. And listen, it wasn't because these guys were mean. It wasn't because these guys were cruel. It's because they uh, played a role in bringing about the Bible that you have in your hand today if, if you have this King James Bible. Uh, they sacrificed their lives, their safety, and their comfort for you to have what you have today. Somebody paid a role, or paid a price. Okay. Now, the fifth person involved was um, uh, Mataus Arogalus. Mataus, M-A-T-T-H-A-U-S, Arogalus, A-U-R-O-G-A-L-L-U-S, Arogalus. He was a professor of Hebrew at the University of Wittenberg. He assisted Luther in the translation of the Old Testament part of the Luther Bible. Uh, and finally, another fellow uh, that was of big important help was the name of George Rohrer, er <laughs> R-O-R-E-R, Rohrer, R-O-R-E-R. He was one of the first clergymen ordained by Martin Luther. He was a pastor in the Bavarian region of Germany, which is basically the southern part of Germany there. Uh, was Luther's secretary until Kreuziger took over. He was one of the editors of Luther's work, uh, Tischreden, which is table talk, Tischreden. Yeah, Tischreden, that's how you say it. Yeah, Table Talk, uh, which is a collection of Luther's thoughts, sayings, and conversations. Now, Luther included in his work uh, the Apocrypha, and he put it between the Old and the New Testament. The Apocrypha is part of the Greek Septuagint, but not the Hebrew Masoretic text. It is not listed in the Table of Contents, but Luther rather uh, give the title of Apocrypha and then he says, uh, quote, these books are not held equal to the scriptures, but are useful and good to read, unquote. 1540, uh, a corrupted version was created by John Calvin to support his heretical ideas he got from Jerome and the Latin Vulgate. Again, there's this in attempt to 
squeeze this Latin Vulgate into the real thing. Okay, you see that? Yet another attempt. 1541 to 1542, the second edition of Luther's Bible is written. This edition is translated in French by Pierre Robert Olivetian. That's O-L-I-V-E-T-A-N. Olivetian. The influence of Luther's Bible. <clears throat> it standardized the German language across the region. And I mentioned it a little bit more, but uh, we'll get into it now. As with most countries, Germany had separate regional versions of the German language spoken. Dialect, slang, that, that sort of thing. Even today, uh, these regional versions are spoken, but there is also a formal version of the German language recognized and used as the national language. Hans Luft, L-U-F-F-T, a renowned Bible printer in Wittenberg, in 40 years, 1534 to 1574, listen, printed over 100,000 copies, which were read by millions of Luther's Bible. 100,000 copies read by millions. Luther's Bible was virtually present in every single German Protestant's home. Every one of them. Luther even had, listen, Luther even had large print versions for those with poor eyesight. Listen, God thought of everything. You think, wow, Luther was a smart man. God put this idea in his head. Obviously, there were people that had bad eyesight. They couldn't read small print. You know, my eyes are getting that way. Luther prints a large print version. Man, you think that just flew off the shelf somewhere? God supplies our every need. Let me say that again. God supplies our every need. Okay? Now, <laughs> the German humanist, Johann Cochleus, I'm going to spell this guy's name so you know exactly who I'm talking about. Johann, which is German form of John. J-O-H-A-N-N. Johann. Cochleus. C-O-C-H-L-A-E-U-S. German humanist. That ought to give you an idea of which side of the fence this guy stands on. Johann Cochleus complained that, quote, Luther's New Testament was so much multiplied and spread by printers that even tailors and shoemakers, yea, even women and ignorant persons, <laughs> Siri threw them two together, uh, who had accepted this new Lutheran gospel and could read a little German, studied it with the greatest avidity as the fountain of all truth. Some committed it to memory and carried it about in their bosom. In a few months, such people deemed themselves so learned that they were not ashamed to dispute about faith and the gospel, not only with Catholic laymen, but even with priests and monks and doctors of divinity. Unquote. I ask you, has there ever been a better argument for why there is a necessity for having God's word in one's own language? These people were so confident in what they were reading. And you can see right there in what this guy says, they knew, they had no doubt, they understood and had faith in what they were reading. And they were so confident they were willing to argue it with even the most learned minds of the academic world of that day. They would argue with them. And if they were arguing, that should tell you something about what they had to argue with these doctors of divinity because they were not even getting it right. 
and these people were getting them straight or putting them straight. Man, that's just amazing. Now, uh, Luther's Bible was translated in other native languages. Uh, 1526, it was translated in Swedish. Uh, in 1527, the Vulgate was translated into German in Leipzig. In 1530, that's the good Vulgate version there in 1527, by the way. Uh, 1533 is the Low German version. That's the slang language there. 1540, it was uh, translated into Icelandic. 1548, translated into Dutch. 1550 in Danish. 1565, there is the revision of the Swiss version. Uh, 1579, uh, the Reformed Church version. 1588, the Pomeranian version. In 1637, uh, there is the Senate for Dort. I don't know if that's a version. Uh, I didn't really clarify what I meant when I wrote that. (laughs) The Senate for Dort. I believe that's an event. I don't think that's a translation. Uh, yeah, in 1743, Christopher Sower. S-O-W-E-R, prints a German-language Bible in Germantown, Pennsylvania. 1743, Christopher Sower, Sower of Seeds, okay, S-O-W-E-R, prints a German-language Bible in Germantown, Pennsylvania. This was the very first Bible printed with typecast in all of America. The very first Bible was printed by a man named Sower. <laughs> Do you not see God in all of this? How can you not see God in all of this? My word. Okay, it's just amazing to me. You may not be having fun, but I certainly am. And, and I hope you I hope you're getting this. And and, and maybe uh you've had some doubts on just how authoritative the authorized version mm-hmm. is. I mean the name alone should tell you, but any name can be put on any Bible, but but I'm I'm hoping that through this study you and you take some of this on your own. You look it up for yourself. Uh, don't take my word for it by any means, and, and find the truth. Let God lead you through the Holy Spirit, and put that confidence in your heart that what you hold in your hand is without a doubt the true Word of God, and there is no other. I mean, I I've said this before, and and I, it makes perfectly common sense to me. A lot of people don't see it this way, but I look at it this way. If there is one God, if there is one Son, if there is one Holy Ghost, if there is one way of salvation, if there is one truth, if there is one life, how can there not be one word? I mean, that's it to me. There has to be one word. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I will see you next time on uh, Light Into My Path podcast. Have a great day. God bless you.